Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. Now then, we've obviously got plenty of comedies to talk about today. Modern ones? Don't know about this. I actually think I know what's going on here, to be honest. I think I know what you're up to because I think that you've done some market research. It's been suggested to you from various experts that the marketplace for discussion of sitcoms that once aired on Carlton Select has sort of dried up. And so now you're trying to go all sort of modern and hip and turn this into a, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy podcast and a Hell's Kitchen podcast and Last Man Standing podcast and so on. Well, you do realise this is semi-informal. I know we edit this very, very tightly, but it's not competitive. Well, you say that. Neither of us is trying to win the podcast. We're just pursuing ideas and seeing where they go, asking questions. If there's no answer, that's okay. Sometimes a question can just focus your mind. But before we talk about all comedies and things, I'd just like to do a quick plug for a podcast from a friend of mine, which is not about comedy. My friend Andrew Hickey has started a mammoth project, A History of Rock and Roll in 500 Songs. At the time I'm speaking... Uh, there's a little introduction and two proper chapters out. Very easy to find. 500songs.com. That's 500 as in the digits. 500songs.com. And he starts in the 1930s. He does it the way we would do it. You start way, way before most people think the thing starts and really get down to the roots. So last time he was talking about the shift from swing shuffle rhythms to backbeats, which is an essential part of the development of rock and roll. So it's really taking a nice, deep historical look. And I'm thinking that by the time he gets partway through, it's going to resemble a rock and roll version of James Burke's Connections. I like that. We're going to see all kinds of peculiar links in how all this stuff came about. Okay, so the 21st century, is it? Yeah, one of the shows we're talking about, the last time we watched an episode was last week. And the reason we watched the episode last week was because that's when the episode came out. This is the most up-to-date we have ever been. I am really not keen on this idea about waiting a week to see something. Because it suddenly hit me when we'd seen, I think it was episode two of season three of The Good Place. And there wasn't an automatic little pop-up on my screen saying, do you want to see the next episode? I'm thinking, why's that? Why's that happened? You're even more on top of things than I am, though, because you watched something that went out on network television last night. I watched the first episode of The Corners. Now, I was going to correct myself there and say, oh, I mean the first episode of the new series, but actually, no, it is the first episode ever of The Corners. And this, of course, is Roseanne minus Roseanne. And it was exactly what I thought it would be, to be honest. It just picks up where it left off, and the whole team, bar one, is... That wasn't a pun, by the way. Bar one are all there, and I guess it's the same creative team behind it. The first episode obviously had a lot of storytelling to do, so not a huge sort of battle of laughs, but I think it will just find its rhythm and just carry on i don't see any reason why it shouldn't be popular i don't see any reason why it shouldn't just continue from then on in this is going to sound like a bit of a strange analogy but still open all hours now we watched the first episode of the new still open all hours when it began just last week and i think this is the first time that you'd seen it maybe since the first series a few years back is that right i think i watched bits of series two and sort of faded away from it Okay, now prepare to have mine blown. There are now more series of Still Open All Hours than there are of Open All Hours. See also Porridge slash Doing Time. Anyway, we noticed in Still Open All Hours that the structure of the episode, it was sort of reminiscent a little bit of Last of the Summer Wine. We're starting to see other characters come to the fore and have their own subplots which were pretty much unconnected with Granville. I'm just sort of thinking that that might be something that happens long term with the Connors. Right now, there's a Razan sized gap in the show, which they're all doing their best to address. 
But as it goes on, I suspect that we'll see more of the new characters who appeared for the first time in the rebooted Roseanne last year. And they'll gradually just sort of take their place and come to the fore. I enjoyed it and I think it will just carry right on. I, I don't see this being a situation where it's like, oh, now that we've lost the lead, it's not got the popularity it once had. I, I don't really see that being the case at all. I think that would be the case more if Roseanne was the character who was getting all the laughs and she was surrounded by straight actors, for example, then you'd have more of a problem. It would be like trying to do, well, I was going to say trying to do Reginald Perrin without Reginald Perrin. That was the first thing that popped into my head when you were saying that. Yeah, but in the case of Roseanne, it was always the case from day one that the laughs were evenly shared out and the creative people behind the series, going way back to 88, they always had well-rounded characters who got laughs. So I don't necessarily see this being a problem. They're not going to have to suddenly bring on uh, a new member of staff. They're not going to have to do anything like that. They're not going to have to suddenly bring on lots of new characters and what have you because they've already got a good little ensemble there anyway. So there you go, a review of a show less than 24 hours after it aired. I know it's been more than 24 hours by the time you're going to hear this, but that's neither here nor, if I might say so, there. And before you all write in, yes, Reginald Perrin was a different situation because the characters that survived were characters who got laughs, but through repetition of catchphrases and repetition of behavior. So, yeah. So, why is it that we don't like talking about British sitcoms after a certain point? What is it that we fail to engage with? And let's face it, we have had a few times where we've put something on the docket and then jacked it in back, for instance. I can partially answer that by the fact that I've had to go over to the laptop just now and just Google current British sitcoms because when I tried to think of current British sitcoms, I was actually struggling. So that's not good for a start. Let me load up this list. So on Reddit. Let's have a look. Okay, Detectorists, that's my fault. I've never seen it. And I suspect I probably quite like it. So that's just a blind spot on my part. Friday Night Dinner, really like Friday Night Dinner. Not really sure that it's something that you would be too fussed about. I don't know. I don't I don't know why I say that. I just get the impression that you sort of be meh about it. But yeah, I really like Friday Night Dinner. It's a really good series and hopefully it'll carry on. There's just been a series a few months back. We did watch back Mitchell and Webb. That was an eloquent silence. Yeah, it was. It was. It just didn't do anything for me. That's how I feel about a lot of shows these days. It's not that I see a show and think, oh, don't put that bloody thing in front of me ever again. God almighty. It's more that there's so many shows that I've seen just as an everyday viewer in the past 20 odd years where I haven't really had any reaction to it at all other than... "Mm." And after a while, I just start sort of feeling that way about most shows. I don't get the... I know we keep on coming back to this, but I think it's going to drive a lot of our conversation today and it drives a lot of our conversation throughout all of these podcasts. A lot of shows don't have the spats effect. I suspect even in our conversation today, some of the shows that we're talking about have the spats effect for you and they don't have it for myself. It's not always about a show which gives you huge belly laughs. So if it's Christmas night and I'm so disposed then I'll put on Mrs. Brown's Boys because it's going to be on anyway. And I'll probably have a bit of a giggle at it, but I have no inclination to come back to it again on any other day of the year. I think a huge problem with British sitcoms and to an extent sitcoms generally, and even beyond sitcoms, even into the realm of advertising and sketches and so on, a huge issue has been The Office because... The Office had the effect of making seemingly everything. I mean, obviously not everything, because there was plenty of shows that were not like The Office, but it just it felt like after the mega success of The Office, because we were talking about this on Twitter the other day, about if I may claim credit for this. I was watching The Office when it started. I was watching it from week one. There you go. Nobody told me to watch it. I found it on BBC Two on a Monday evening, and hey, I watched it, and I was the same with Peep Show as well. Just put that on the record. But... When The Office then sort of became enormous, somewhere between its first and second screening, 
and the DVD sales were through the roof. And then there was that Christmas special that's transferred to BBC One and it's just like the show that everybody's talking about. It felt for a long, long time after that that show after show after show after show was aping The Office. And by that, I mean someone, possibly person in some sort of position of authority, does something a little bit either inappropriate or silly and everybody in the immediate radius is struck mute. And after a while, when I saw this repeated so many times, it would be some... ITV would make a big deal about, oh, we've got this fantastic new sitcom and it's going to be edgy and so on. You just knew. When they said edgy, you knew that's what it was going to be, basically. It's going to be awkward silences. And then you start seeing it being done in advertisements and really just... It was like, oh, this is humour now. This is what it is. We're getting it wrong all these years. We weren't supposed to have an audience. We weren't supposed to have multiple cameras, for goodness sake. How are we so dumb? And so that, I think, put me off experimenting with shows for a while because after a while I just sort of thought, yeah, I can I'll just take one look at the trailer and I just sort of think, yeah. Nah. And I think the reason that I like shows like Friday Night Dinner, for example, is because it doesn't do that. The characters have got character. They actually react to things in different ways. They don't all act and operate in the same way. I'm struggling to think of a lot of modern British sitcoms. Still Game, obviously, because I watched Still Game from the start, and you know, Still Game's sort of close to me in geography and what have you, sort of recognisable characteristics and language and so on. Inside Number 9, I'm seeing that on the list as well. I watched League of Gentlemen at the time. It's okay, but I'm not really a horror film fan. I'm not really a film buff. I think there's a lot of that that would just pass me by completely in terms of subtlety and detail and what have you. People just do nothing. Never seen it. Don't know anything about it. Red Dwarf. I stopped watching Red Dwarf after Series 7. Never really picked up on it again on Dave. And maybe it's just this thread that I'm looking at on Reddit, but the fact that I'm already half down the page and we're already talking about sitcoms that are on Dave, for goodness sake. Never seen Cuckoo. Seen very occasionally Man Down. I think they're both Greg Davis shows. The Inbetweeners I really liked. But that's not even a modern show anymore. That's 10 years old. W1A, I tired of. I like 2012 W1A. I just thought too much repetition in this. There's not much character development going on here. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So yeah, that, that was a very, very long answer to your question. But I think the fact that I was struggling so much to even think of names of British sitcoms a, underlines the fact that there are fewer British sitcoms around these days than there once were. If you look at old radio and TV times, you'll see sitcoms every single night of the week. Sitcoms are expensive to make. We know that cheaper forms of programming have come to the fore in the last 20 or so years. Broadcasters are less willing to take risks and they find formats such as reality shows and panel games safer and cheaper. But also, The Office had, I think, a big impact and, and just led to a lot of very uncreative, if that's a word, shows for a long period of time. And I think now it's pretty much, I think that's died down now. I think that, that shows are starting to have the, the confidence to be their own show again, rather than existing in that huge shadow. So that's my very long-winded answer. What about yourself, Till? Gentrification. I think that's a big problem in British television. Resources are now pooling around high-profile, expensive drama and comedy productions. Maybe not so much expensive comedy. That to please a certain demographic because television and British culture, outside television to a certain extent, is getting quite homogenous. Do you remember the Doctor Who time team fuss, fracas? War I, I remember thing. it being oh yeah, I remember it being a thing, but I think it was largely because you explained to me what it was all about. But yes, I saw people talking about it on Twitter. Originally it was a bunch of people sit around, watch Doctor Who, and I think it was from the beginning in order. I don't know how long it kept being that, but they got rid of one team and said we're going to bring in a new team and they're diverse and they're all young and some of them are like YouTube stars. But they're women and black and minority ethnic, things like that. There was the carping from, you know, those kinds of people who don't like to say out loud, but somehow always find a way of getting upset by the presence of women and other ethnicities that they don't hang out with. One person said something interesting, which is, yeah, they're all diverse in their background, but are they going to be diverse in their opinions? 
They were all kind of hip taste makers, YouTube stars. Are they all going to be a bit... Hi, guys! Are they all going to sound the same? Are they all going to have very similar points of view? Are their opinions formed already in a way that they can state out loud to a theoretical audience? It's something I'm seeing on social media. Maybe I'm guilty of it too. Now, because you have a platform where you can just throw a sentence out with a readership of potentially billions... Are there billions of people? Anyway, lots of people. You start talking like you're a newsreader or a celebrity or somebody who makes opinions, leads opinions, changes opinions en masse. Not just nudges your friends this way or that way and gets them to reconsider side two of A Night at the Opera. Everybody's a celebrity now in their own minds. Everybody's a critic. Something I want to expand upon next week. And so shows are being made as part of this odd hype marketing criticism complex. So the criticism reproduces the press release. The press release is written to be one step ahead of the critical voices so that, you know, fairly sure this is what you're going to say. So we're just going to say it's true to life. That's why it's so funny. So that leaks into even the presentation. And then we get a generation who grow up like that for whom media is constant. Our generation, I saw somebody once describe, I think it was blogger Andrew Realstone, Generation X as the first generation of television natives. We were the first generation for whom television was just there. You turned it on like a tap, certainly after 1983. If you're in the house, the TV's on and the TV is broadcasting something. Before that... TV started at 9am and then before that started at about 4pm. TV might be something you had to wait for. TV might be something that you only turned on at certain points anyway because you got used to this idea. So we get a generation of whom media is novel, that kind of media, the audiovisual bombardment is novel. Then a generation for whom it's part of who we are and then a generation for whom it's the element <laughs> it's as constant as oxygen media is just there and not only is it part of your identity what shows you watch but also your personal output people bootlegging tv shows and then putting up videos ahead of that saying i just like to thank everybody who's thanked me for uploading <laughs> all these thanks that happens <laughs> And we kind of now have a cultural machine in which everybody is something in the media, somewhere around about the middle class, but uses enough glottal stops to let you know they're not uptight. And there's this homogenous point of view. And of course, if you want to take that into a more political class thing, uh, the best way to get in the media is to be able to do an unpaid internship. To do that, your parents have to be reasonably well healed or you have to have a trust somewhere. It's not easy to get in. Occasionally, there will be an initiative to say we shall get some people who are from outside the bloodline into our media, but maybe now it's too late. Well, the fact that you have to have such initiatives, surely that tells you that the system is inherently broken anyway. But now even people outside the aristocracy talk like aristocrats. I'm probably overstating wildly a bit just to make my point visible. I don't think that's entirely the case in the US. Diversity in the US is different. So I think the whole push of diversity is actually kind of changing the voices over here. And As I've said before, one of the things I found was over here, my race is also my social class. White is a social class. Mexican is a social class. And so sometimes the way people talk about each other is the way I'm used to talking about people in terms of their accent, the size of their house, the job their parents do. I don't necessarily mean that I'm a judgmental little social climber. But just the way I'm used to hearing that thing. So in the US, where, of course, there's how many more people? Five times? And there's that history of 
race, which is different from the British history of race. I once met somebody who thought we didn't have racism in Britain. Oh, the sweet summer child. Because that's different, if you do throw out a diversity initiative, I think you will find people who do talk differently. And I've got a feeling now this is going to turn in to a two-parter. But let's start then with Blackish, uh, which has been described by the President of the United States before he held that office as, I think, one of the most racist things ever. <laughs> can you imagine a show called Whitish? <laughs> yes. Yes, I can. Somebody should have actually sent him a link to the BBC cookery-based sitcom White. I think it was, was it Alan Davis and Izzy <laughs> Sooty from a few years ago just say, look, actually, yes, there it is. Blackish is about race in America, but it's about race in a way that's about class. I think I've said this on a previous show. And to a certain extent, he said, sticking his neck out, it's the 21st century, bless this house. Because the generation gap is profound to the people in this show. Show's all about a guy, Andre Johnson, and he grew up in The Hood, I believe he refers to it as. But now he works for an advertising agency, he has a massive house, he has a really big, big fridge, even by American standards. He is, I would say, upper middle class. He's professional class, and his wife is a doctor, he's a surgeon, so... He's having to deal with being in that weird, giddy height that he never thought... Well, hey, we're back to meet the wife, in a way. But it also means there are certain aspects about him that are still stuck in the old lack of opportunities. We watched an episode which is all about why he can't swim. And why he can't swim is partially about the racial social history of America. And then, of course, there's his kids and... They're used to being upper middle class. So now there's a thing of they're not black enough, are they? There's this whole thing that his son doesn't know the nod. The nod is really important, apparently. You're walking around, you see a brother. That's what they say, you know. You, you just catch your eye and sort of nod your head up. And it means, I see you. We're, you know, we're both here, so we made it. Good. And his son doesn't know that. His daughter's friends use the N-word, and she says it's no big thing. Gary, Blackish, what did you think? I have to admit that my first viewing of it was interrupted by a supermarket delivery that was covered in milk, and so that did slightly affect my enjoyment of it. But I thought that that's unfair, so I thought I've really got to give this a second go. I did enjoy it. Yes, it's a very well-observed and presented sitcom. Very engaging and... I guess it would be, I've got to say this, I don't have anywhere to take this statement, but it's just something that jumped into my head. And I suspect it might also be something that's in the heads of people who are listening to us just now, whilst you were relating all of those details about specific episodes and so on. Are we sort of part of the problem? Because we're talking about blackish and you're relating all those details about specific elements of black culture and what have you. And here we are to white dudes from the relatively safe streets and it just sounds a bit odd but i don't have anything to say about that i don't i'm not necessarily saying oh we need to actually replace ourselves with the doctor who time team yeah but we're talking from a different point of view we're talking about 21st century american sitcoms being followable enjoyable saying things that britain can no longer say and blackish's reason is is that when you get, well, even to a certain extent without the race element, but I think in the US, the race element and the generation gap element and the class element just give you nice big divides for people to fall into, which is something that's driven comedy from time immemorial and maybe more in British comedy going back than in American comedy, because there was a time when American comedy maybe didn't like to admit there were those social gaps. Also, the social gaps weren't so big as well. If you look at like something like Bewitched, um, his boss lives what, maybe a neighborhood away, maybe even a few streets away, in a slightly bigger house, before the uh, end of the Great Prosperity. Now, your boss lives in a McMansion, <laughs> and you... <laughs> Live in your car. <laughs> it's a very engaging show. It's very accessible. So it has these 
little potted history lessons. I'm going to make a really, really odd comparison here. But Great British Bake Off, which I've not seen since it transferred from BBC. So I don't know if they still do this in the Channel 4 version. But on the BBC version, whilst the contestants are busily making whatever it is that they've got to make for round two or whatever, Mel and Sue would be giving you these little informative potted histories of a particular dish or a particular area or whatever it may be, just a little 60 second piece, you sort of get those kind of things in Blackish. So they'll set up a situation and if there's any doubt at the back of your mind as a viewer as to why is this a situation, why is this an issue for them, then we'll suddenly on the screen we'll get a 20 second or so little potted history of why this is important to this group of people in this particular instance. And then if you weren't already aware, then you all clued up. And from then on, you're going along for the ride. If you want to look at cliches, there is a lot of learning in this. Hugs and learning. And there is this voiceover. Usually it's uh, Dre, sometimes it's his wife, Rainbow. And... There's always this thing at the end of, well, I guess I learned this today. Not in so many words, but there is, it's slightly, it's not preachy, but it is slightly teachy, which, as Gary said, though, sometimes it's like, wow, I didn't even know that. I like finding out stuff I didn't know. And there's always that reaching a conclusion, almost like the Wonder Years. (laughs) Yes. Well, it was that day that I learned. Uh, So in the whole thing of the nod, Dre learns that his son has his own nod because there's his own outside a class that he belongs to it's just not along lines of race for all that's being said it's very good at just taking shots in all directions so as you'd think yes they they take shots about oppression of african-american people but i mean dre is a big baby man who panics and overreacts He's a hypocrite. His mother's terrible, and I can't watch every episode because she just gets on my nerves. Uh, really, just you know, I mean, she doesn't like her daughter-in-law because uh, Dre's wife is half white. Basically, any time there's that old thing of pointing at somebody in comedy and saying you're actually a bit silly, you're a bit of a hypocrite. It points to anybody. So there is an episode about the use of the N word. What happens is Dre's son falls foul of the zero tolerance policy in the school but one of the people who campaigned hardest for the zero tolerance policy was dre's wife so there's now this whole thing of yeah but we didn't realize it was going to affect us so they learn about how to apply certain standards so for dre it's important that he be able to use that word it's like you know we changed it his his parents generation still used it as an insult to other black people his generation, they made it empowering, and he feels it's important to be able to do that, but you can't just have your boy spout it at the school talent show. So yeah, I recommend Blackish, but just, just don't watch any episode that's too focused on his mother, Ruby. <laughs> now, speaking of learning, you get a little bit of that in Modern Family as well. Of all the shows that we're talking about today, I suspect that Modern Family would be the one that's best known in Britain, because it's been on Sky ever since it began. And how many series is it into now? Is it, was it 10 series? It's on series 10 now, yes. And the first two episodes of the 10th season were terrible. Really just treading water. And last week I said to my wife, said, shall, we, shall we watch episode three? And episode three had all the jokes in it that had been missing from the first two. Obviously, it's no longer in its, I guess maybe the phrase imperial phase is passe now, but I guess it might be in its zombie phase, but it certainly doesn't look it. I'm still getting laughs from it, so... Okay, so let me see if I've got this right, because I didn't start watching Modern Family from the start, so it took me a little while to sort of work out who was who. But we've got Jay, who's Ed O'Neill, you might remember from Married with Children, and he is remarried, so he's married Gloria, who's younger than him, and they have a son, and also there's a son from Gloria's previous marriage. We've also then got Jay's daughter, Claire, and she's married to Phil, and they have three children. And then we have Jay's son, Mitchell, and his husband, Cameron, and they've got an adopted daughter, Lily. So we've got basically three types of family all together within the one show. I mean, as a title, it is kind of on the nose, isn't it? Oh, look, huh? 
And even despite that, this is what I'm saying about diversity bringing just shifts in points of view, which of course means new opportunities for jokes. There are still people who think it's somewhat problematic because the two main adult female characters are both housewives. And there's also a feeling that Gloria is a bit of an uncomfortable stereotype in that she's a bit stupid and loud and she's Colombian. And I can see why people might think that. But Sofia Vergara, who plays Gloria, is Colombian and not just like she was born there. You know, she's grown up in Colombia. She says she bases Gloria on her aunts. I guess if you want the more grounded, less stereotypical voice, uh, you've got Manny, Jay's stepson, Manny Delgado. And there's a bit of the Bobby Hill about him in that he's interested in stuff that Jay despairs of. Uh, Manny's quite serious, intellectual, a little bit pretentious, a little bit precious, kind of boy who wears a cravat at age 10, that sort of thing. No, be honest. Does that apply to yourself as well? Specifically the cravat? I owned one, but I I never wore it. So that's the Pritchett family. Then we've got the Dunphys. So Claire is kind of the voice of sanity. Occasionally she gets caught out in a lie or a bit of fancy footwork or a little bit of hypocrisy, but she's not really a big comedy type. She's a character who gets laughs, gets laughs through her actions and through what she says, but she's not somebody who's easy to describe. She doesn't fall into the general big sitcom character things. And her husband, Phil, he is a big comedy type. He's quite broad, but he's very difficult to describe because he's kind of goofy. He doesn't really know that he's goofy. Uh, He thinks he's cool and he's not, but he's relentlessly cheerful and optimistic. I think the thing about Phil, Phil's a really great character. And the thing that stands out for me is that Phil is all about little defeats. Fletch in Porridge is all about little victories. Phil overall has won at life. He loves his wife. They enjoy their marriage. He's reasonably proud of his kids. They're a bit tear away, some of them, but... There's nothing to indicate any really high wall between them emotionally. He enjoys his job. He's just self-unaware enough (laughs) that he enjoys some of his peculiar activities. So he's a nice person who, for the most part, has what he wants, and then you just have to occasionally set up just a little thing that blows up in his face, still allowing him to come out smiling. To give an illustration then of a joke about him, but you see, oh, you know, I'm the cool dad. I'm I'm always in in the uh, the text speak because the show's old enough that that was a new thing when it started. You know, LOL, laugh out loud, OMG, oh my god, WTF, why the face? <laughs> and he's got a son who's dumb, comedy idiot, tear away daughter a little bit. This was Britain. Sometime in the past, I guess she would be brassy, but we we don't have those types now. And Lisa Simpson. Got the brilliant daughter who's just cleverer than everybody and suffers for it. And then the Pritchett Tuckers, the gay couple with the adopted daughter. So I guess that's the one that strikes you most as this would not have happened years earlier. It's still, relatively speaking, a new idea. And to have it just portrayed in a sitcom as a family unit which doesn't get much comment. So Mitchell J's son, he's kind of the male Claire. He has his foibles, he has his things, but generally he's the voice of sanity. Cameron <laughs> Cameron is the Phil. And there's a number of different aspects to him that uh, he's the more flamboyant one, so of course he's played by the straight actor. Just occasionally he'll do a gesture that's sort of like There's one where he thinks he's passed himself off for straight and got a woman's phone number. And he just does this incredible hand gesture that I think only Danny LaRue has done better (laughs) in celebration. Uh, He is a farm boy. He grew up in the country. So there's this whole thing about how uh, he named their adoptive daughter after Aunt Lily. But it turns out Aunt Lily's not an aunt. Aunt Lily was the name of a pig. And he's also a clown. He has a clowning persona called Fizzbo. And so you, there's, there's a whole circus backstory as well. 
it's one thing to talk about is realism. Blackish, for the most part, is uh, shall we set this as a scale of realism, where zero is absolutely realistic and ten is the Weekenders by Reeves and Mortimer. <laughs> Blackish is one or two. Blackish is usually completely realistic, but they do have this peculiar relationship between Dre's youngest daughter and his co-worker Charles. She's bullying him. She's attacking him. Then there's this suggestion that there is a private war going on in the background we're never entirely a party to. Also, at one point, they're talking about how old Charles is. He talks about meeting Janis Joplin. And before, it's always looked like he's the same age as Dre. He's like born, what, somewhere between 75 and 85. I was like, how old are you? He says, somewhere between 39 and 72. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to see my birth certificate, so I don't know who my father is. Somebody famous. But there's a bit where thank you notes are being sent out by the family, and he gets a call from Dre's youngest daughter. She says, I have your address now. That'll be your last mistake. Modern Family is, I would say, three or four. It's a little broader. You couldn't behave that way in real life. But The Office, aha, we're back to The Office, and we're back to the US office. I think that had a bit of a profound effect over here. Initially, Modern Family is done like The Office. We see a scene play out, and then we see characters' commentary on it. To begin with, we get characters' names on screen, so we know who's who. That concept really starts to decay very quickly. Until in the end, we're left with, it's like cameras would not be here. They would not be showing this. They wouldn't be allowed to. Nobody would sign the clearance forms for this. So now what we have is a sitcom where occasionally the characters talk to us about what just happened. Can I just interject at this point? Because I can hear people shouting at their MP3 players and there's something that we need to address. And it's a disgraceful oversight. I'm going to take most of the brunt of this, to be honest. I just realised... When you were saying there about the impact that the American office had, and yeah, you do get it in a ton of shows these days about you've got the sit-down interviews with the people and it, it, it happens in another show that we're going to talk about shortly as well. However, as you were saying that and you were talking about the sit-down interviews in Modern Family, the thing that was running through my head was actually best in show, Christopher Guest. Yes! And that predates The Office. And I can visualize, I can, I can see in front of me, there was a gay couple in Best in Show and the sort of the interplay between them sort of reminded me a little bit of Modern Family or should be the way around, I guess. And yeah, just that format of thing happens and then sat down discussing it, you know, down the lens and what have you. It's Christopher Guest. You could argue then that the US office, maybe the UK one as well, is proof of concept that you can do Christopher Guest style comedy as half hour sitcoms. But... We're now on series 10 of Modern Family, and there's no sense there's a camera crew there. Why are they talking to us? I mean, very occasionally there's breaking of the fourth wall in that at the end of a scene, somebody will look into camera, and it's now like the Oliver Hardy look. Oliver Hardy's looking at his. There's no, there's no camera in his home. <laughs> He's just faintly aware that there's an audience out there watching his humiliation. And so now we have a sitcom that's taken that further And we have characters who, after a scene plays out, are then outside of the scene. They're now just sitting and talking to us about their feelings, about what happens in the scene, and uh, just letting us in about the way they think about certain topics. It's odd, but it works. But if you think about it, I guess you pass out. Well, I think suffice to say that Modern Family is a very, very enjoyable show. It doesn't need us to say that, of course. It wouldn't be going for 10 seasons if it wasn't. It's... A huge success. I think it's ABC's longest-running comedy series, I believe. Oh, yes, a line I've written down here. Just to give a sense. So Modern Family, it's not innovative in its format, and its format is actually kind of stupid. But there was one bit I wrote down just to give a sense of why I find Modern Family funny. So there's a bit where Phil is talking about the Valentine's Day present he wanted, which was a pair of handcuffs that belonged to Harry Houdini when he did a particular escape that was so amazing, women went spontaneously into labour and men paired off in violent fighting. And it's just men paired off. (laughs) Just gives you that nice texture, the sounds of the words, the vision of course, because when you say men paired off in violent fighting, you got that sense of them all doing the gentleman gym pose. (laughs) 
one fist close to the face, one fist out, and so all wax mustaches. Thing is, it's a really good tactic to have if you're in a busy environment and suddenly a riot kicks off. It would be like, okay, you'd be looking around and thinking, okay, yourself, and you just have a quick sort of kayfabe conversation. Right, okay, so if two of us just sort of stick together, everybody else will leave us alone. And then you start throwing work punches and what have you. <laughs> so, shall we talk about the other thing then? Because uh, we're now going backwards. We're going to Parks and Recreation, which I think at one point was intended to be a direct spin-off from The Office, but became a notional spin-off from The Office, spiritual successor. Rashida Jones is in the US office, isn't she? Yes. I never watched the US office, and she's in Parks and Recreation. And Parks and Recreation keeps the docu-soap idea, I think, a little bit more... It continues the docu-soap idea, even after we've still already had this... I think there are references to the cameras and things like that. After we've long had things of like, we wouldn't see this. We would not be allowed to be shown this. So Parks and Recreation, I binged it recently. I got interested in the characters, interested in what they're going on. Some of the jokes are very funny, but I don't like it the way I like Modern Family. It seems to be a little bit high off its own reputation. I mean, Gary, you watched some with me and you weren't really looking forward to those like you were at the other shows we talked about. No, I'd seen some Parks and Recreation before and again, it all comes back to the office. Even when it shouldn't do, if it's actually should come back to Christopher Guest. But first time I ever saw Parks and Recreation a few years back, I just sort of thought, eh, the office. And that's probably a failing on my part, being somewhat, what's the word I'm looking for? Guilty of being too judgmental too quickly. So when I saw it, I was just thinking, ah, nah, they're in something that looks like an office and they're talking to the camera. It's the office, meh. And so that, that was it. I didn't really follow up. And I didn't really shake off that feeling, even when we were watching these episodes. But I grew to like the characters and the situation and what have you. But I can't really shake off the feeling that this is not the most original of shows, given you know, all that's gone on before in the past sort of 15 years or so. It's not, and yet it sometimes seems to think it is. I've watched all of the, well, I haven't watched much of the first series. I tried watching the first series, gave up, and somebody said, oh, if you like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that's one of the shows on our list, you like Parks and Recreation. And I said, I tried and I didn't like it. And they said, which did you watch? And I said, well, season one, episode one. Skip it. Start at season two, episode one. Uh, because that's what... It's, it's a Michael Shaw show. Yes, it is. It is. Because in season one, there's more of a, look at these funny losers. And season two, they actually decided to like their characters. So it's principally about Leslie Knope. She works in the Parks and Recreation Department of a town called Pawnee, Indiana. Already forgotten. And it's a small town, so there are jokes about small town America... And yes, it could be very easy for them to come across quite point and laughish. And I guess maybe sometimes they do. Even if they're done with affection, you can't entirely get away from the fact that th these people are all stars now. This is not being made by a company based in Indiana. We don't have the lovely old ITV system when a show set in Manchester was made by people who grew up in Manchester. It doesn't suffer too badly from that, but I, I wouldn't blame anybody for not liking it because of that feeling. And then you have the famous Ron Swanson, who is, I've, I've seen recently referred to as the myth of the good Republican. Uh, he's a libertarian. He, he works in a branch of the government because he wants to effectively destroy it. And he represents meat and whiskey and guns and old-fashioned manly values. The character builds up enough affection Republicans watch TV too. You don't want to turn him into a monster, but just occasionally it's like, yeah, but what does he think of this? And if he thinks this, why does he think that in the light of some of his other beliefs? Yeah, the thing is, this show ended in 2015. Since the end of 2016, some people have felt slightly different about political differences in the US. And that's why they start biting back at characters like Ron Swanson. I didn't say he was the myth of the good Republican. I'd just seen him described as that on Twitter. And I thought I'd throw that out there. Okay, this is more for my benefit, but 
what strand of the Republican Party would you say that Ron is most in keeping with? I mean, not just today, but historically, is he a Reagan? He's a libertarian. An anti-government libertarian doesn't like paying taxes, doesn't like the existence of a federal government, uh, sees regulation as curbs on individual freedoms, that kind of person. In 2016, he would have voted for whoever the, the, the guy who had never heard of Aleppo. <laughs> yes. That's all that guy's remembered for. Great now. job managing the optics there. Not, not even his name. That's all. I can't remember his name. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, back in the day, he would have been... What was that? What was that guy's name? Who, who am I thinking of? Not not Ron Paul before um, third party candidate. Oh, what was his name? Come on, he was always 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 around. Oh, uh, Ross Perot. Ross Perot. There you go. Yes, there you go. But in general, um, everybody in it—they all have their own little ticks and quirks. Everybody in it has a similar background. Even the African American character, even the Middle Eastern Asian American character—they're not radically different. There's very little made out of their racial backgrounds which you know that's fine you don't have to i just thought you might be interested whether they did or not mostly it's not so tom who's the uh indian american character his whole thing is that he's he's a honestly i was gonna say typical millennial what is a typical millennial he's interested in fame and success as an end in itself yes and he doesn't really have any idea of how to get it so he's always like firing off these ideas of entrepreneurial schemes but it's things like putting glitter in soap <laughs> and he ends up involved with a company called entertainment 720 but it's just like it's a entertainment and media conglomerate and it has one of those kind of fun workspaces where they have pinball tables and they have a basketball pro <laughs> So it's that whole idea of like, you know, Google headquarters stereotype of just people on skateboards indoors. And there's no real plan of what they do. They do actually mount an event, but there just seems to be a thing of, yeah, I'm involved. So I turn up at the place and then I sit around and, and then I go home. <laughs> he, he'll have seen the, the film of Steve Jobs and thought, yeah, this is the guy that I want to be. But he wouldn't actually have been interested in looking into the, the detail behind the years and years and years of product development and 24-hour workdays and so on that would have gone into that. He would. He just wants to be in Silicon Valley. And also, of course, yeah, he wants to be a big player and I suppose what you could say would be the gig economy. And yet he's in this relatively safe role in government and he's not necessarily going to be leaving that anytime soon. I want to talk about a show that's not actually on the list, but we did watch one of. Now I have a guess as to which show this is. Is it, I don't even know the full title, is it Kimmy Schmidt? Is that it? No, it's <gasps> Trial and Error. No! Trial and Error is Parks and Recreation done horribly, horribly wrong. Oh boy. Trial and Error, I only watched uh, season two because it turned up on Hulu and killed some time. Oh God, I'm so desperately lonely. Trial and Error, so there's a trial. There was a trial in season one. John Lithgow, I think, was the accused. Uh, season two, it's... Somebody else whose name escapes me, she's very short, perky Christian singer who was in that show about dead people who could wake up for a minute that was called Pushing Daisies. She was in Pushing Daisies. She's Kristen Chenoweth. There you go. Thank you. Arsenal! She's the accused in this. And so effectively, it's a lawyer from the big city comes to a small town. Hey, visions of Pawnee. But in this, everybody's just a stupid hick to be laughed at and it, it really is just rubes you don't even come from a city ah that was the feeling i got maybe season one is different but season two i, I kept watching it because no actually i don't know why i kept watching it i have nothing to say for myself <laughs> i have no memory of watching kimmy schmidt but i'm told that we did and that i didn't like it so can you actually remind me of What's the name of the damn show anyway? Is it, is it called Disappearing Kimmy Schmidt? Or it's got no, some... The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Right, okay. I knew that was a word before Kimmy Schmidt. Right, so apparently I saw an episode of this of which I have no memory and I didn't like it. So what's that all about? It's about... No, I don't mean what's the show who... all about. I mean, why why don't I remember it and didn't like it? Um, I guess it's kind of broad. It's done in a very colourful way. It has constant incidental music. 
it's a seven or an eight on the scale of normal to bizarre. But there's a joke about personal robots, and every episode after then we see the personal robots at work. I think an ongoing joke about how many Olsen twins there are. That it you know it turns out they're not actually twins. There's a whole bunch of them taking turns, and I don't really know why you didn't like it. I could understand you going off it a series where on because there was a weird thing. There were some accusations of being problematic, which everything's going to get those accusations, and uh, it's fine for people to bring up, "Hey, I'm not sure about this," and start talking about it. So there were accusations that there was an Asian American character in it called Dong who was Vietnamese or Korean, I forget. And there was a feeling that he was a bit of a stereotype and that he was kind of only there to be laughed at because he was a funny foreigner. And, uh, guys, you want to watch Mind Your Language. And series two of Kimmy Schmidt had this whole plot line about why, no, actually, you're wrong. Ah, it seemed to be about that. So um, there's a character in it called Titus and he puts on a one-man show uh, where he at one point dresses as a geisha, an Asian American uh, campaign group protests this and boycotts it, and in the end they're shown to be wrong. And it's like, oh, but, you know, come on. We did also watch a very enjoyable wee show called Angie Tribeca. We don't have time to talk about Superior Donuts or Brooklyn Nine Nine or The Good Place. I'm going to suggest. I was actually going to suggest that we talked about the other shows, but we hold back the good place for a show of its own. We don't even really have time to talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Superior Donuts. And really, those three are, I think, the strongest three to point to. Or they're a good, strong set. And one of them is the way sitcoms are made now. It's single camera, it's no audience, but it moves along at a good clip. It's full of gags. Another is being praised as being innovative which I suppose it is, it's constant shredding of its own format. The fact that it's a sitcom about morality, ethics, and philosophy. And another one is three walls and a studio audience and a workplace. It's good, it's traditional. It got cancelled after two series, but it made it to two series. So I think we can come back next week and continue this look at 21st century sitcoms from the US. We've got a lot to say. It's been a while since we had a discussion that actually went above and beyond and expanded into a second show. So, yes, I'm off for this. And if you think we might not fill that time, uh, I'll tell you what, you want to watch uh, Angie Tribeca when we're finished here? i go on then. Right. One last plug. 500songs500songs.com. That's Andrew Hickey's podcast. You will learn things about rock and roll you didn't know you didn't know. Can I just take issue with one statement there? I don't know anything about rock and roll, so all exactly. the things that I would learn unknown, about unknown unknowns, things you don't know, you don't oh, know. There'll be lots I for you. Get it? It'll be a whole wonderland. I like it. Where do I find this podcast? Five zero zero, as in the digits on your numbers pad on your keyboard. Five zero zero songs dot com. So, in the meantime, you can find ourselves at the Sitcom Club. You can find ourselves at Jaffa Cakes for Proust. You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter. You can hear all of our previous episodes at podnose.com, where you'll find all manner of other shows as well, even a vodcast that's appeared there as well. So, yeah, when are we doing vodcasts? When are we going video? Actually, shall we skip video and we'll go into the fourth dimension? We'll actually start doing hologrammatic stuff and what have you. What do you reckon? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just even skip that and go right into the seventh dimension? So, if you want to, all of you, align your jeweled overpositors towards the sense orb now okay you can skip next week because you already know it oh and so thank you very much indeed for listening and we will be with you again on the same topic different shows next time on sitcom club <laughs>